switch on us this morning. We was all clapping our hands and having a good time. Then you made us cry. And let me tell you, um, I've been in church for a long time, and I've learned never to judge somebody else's worship where other people get a little excited and raise their hands or cry or bow down. And I've been in churches where people start running pews and then wig you out, you know, but that's what God is just telling them to do in the moment. But I want to tell you something. If you didn't feel nothing during that time, something's wrong. I'm going to tell you, your wood is wet. Something's wrong. Because if, if you're just sitting there like, hmm. No, sir, there should have been something stirring inside of you because that was the most uneven exchange ever in history where I give God my shame and my sin and my regrets and my mistakes and he gives me his righteousness and his glory and his... Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you, that song, I don't know where you found it, but son, I loved it. I'm going to tell you right now, the most glorious exchange that's ever taken place was in my favor, and he did it because he loved me. He bankrupted heaven for me, sent heaven's most valuable possession down to earth so I could be set free. That's a great love right there. That's a great love, and that's the love he loved. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me tell you, that word commendeth means put on display. How did he put it on display? On a mountain called Calvary. There his son has died. Why? Because he loved me so much, he gave me his best at my worst condition, while I was still in my sin, while I was still in my shame, he sent his best, his best because he loved me so much. Man, I don't know about you, but that song, that song was special. That song was great. Now, now I don't know where we're at right now with live. Are we on live stream? We are. We're good. Okay, thank you all for tuning in. I don't know how many of y'all watching right now. You're staring at a black screen for a long time, but you missed some good singing if you didn't get to catch it. Um, here's where we're going to be at today. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. Um, I, was, I was praying about God. Help me. Help me figure out where we're going to be at today. And uh, <laughs> Miss... Uh, Miss Wendy over there, you've caught a little, well, Matt, I don't know if you was in the, in the football locker room the other day or not, but you caught a little bit, I think you were, uh, I got to share a little bit, kind of a brief outline with the football players at Vimont High School, and, uh, but this is the full version. Now, here's the thing, I don't know how many fishermen we have in this place, or how many of y'all have ever been on a boat before, but I grew up, I was talking to somebody earlier, I'm kind of a mutt, uh, I was born in New Orleans. I moved to Panama City. Uh, my parents divorced when I was about three years old. After that point, my mom went back to Mobile, Alabama, where her parents were, so I went with her. And my dad had joint custody, so I'd see him every other weekend. And so every other weekend, I'd be going to Panama City, Florida, uh, growing up. And then my senior year of high school, I moved to Panama City permanently. But my whole life, I grew up on that panhandle. That's where I grew up, and I love fishing. I loved it. All right, saltwater fishing. Let me tell you, my dad had an offshore boat, and we'd go every weekend offshore fishing. And so that was one of the biggest adjustments coming up here to Coleman, Alabama five years ago, is y'all don't have salt water, you know? And so they'd say, let's go, let's go Smith Lake. Let's go to Gunnersville. I said, okay. And, you know, I'd catch a three-pound bass, and they're like, man, that's a good fish. And I'm looking at this thing. I'm like, I use this for bait. You're like, <laughs> what y'all could have, I caught... I caught 120-pound tarpons wade fishing. All right, so I had to make an adjustment. But here's what I realized a lot of times is if you've done any kind of fishing or any kind of out there going on a boat or anything like that, you, there might have been a chance you've been in a storm on a boat. Has anybody ever been out in a boat before when it's storming? The scariest thing. I mean, when a sure enough storm comes, it is scary. Now, when you're five miles offshore and a storm comes, that's a different kind of scary because sometimes when you're on a lake, you can, you can whip over to a dock and ca- catch some shelter, jump on the bank, whatever you got to do. But when you're out there in the middle of nowhere and a storm comes, 
That's scary. That's scary. And, and this morning, what we're going to talk about is actually one of those moments where we see our disciples once again out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm in Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to start reading in verse 22. It says, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples. That word constrained basically means forced. He, he forced his disciples to get into a ship. And to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But Jesus straightway, uh, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come into the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and began to sink, and he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth thou art the Son of God. And when we were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of the garment. Now, I wonder where they got that from. Remember last week, that lady just wanted to touch the hem. Now, now, now it's gotten out. This woman, all she did was touch his garment. And so they're just coming, just let me touch the garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Let's pray this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, Lord, I thank you so much for the worship we've already had. Lord, have you stirred our hearts and just reminded us of how good you are and how much you love us. And Lord, as we go into your word, Lord, I pray that worship will continue. As your word speaks to us, Lord, it comes alive. Lord, I pray that it challenges us and convicts us. Most of all, Lord, I pray it changes us. And Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen, amen. Now, here's what I've always believed growing up. And maybe y'all have kind of adopted the same mindset. But I, I was always of the belief and the persuasion that when bad things happened, it was because either God was angry at me or I had done something wrong. And that, that's, that was a, a legitimately what I was taught in, in, in church. We, see, I, I came from a, a church background where we had these, uh, we called them leather lung preachers. Y'all might know what I'm talking about. They take one, one breath at the beginning of the service and their last breath at the end of the service. And they don't breathe any time in between. And it's just a whole bunch of hollering. And all they do is tell you everything you've done wrong. I mean, they just holler at you and their face would be red. And I remember one preacher come and he preached about tithing. And he says, if you don't tithe, God is going to get it somehow. He'll make the brakes go out in your car. He'll make the water heater explode. He'll make your AC conditioner go out. He'll get it somehow. I was scared to death. Because there are sometimes growing up, I'm a poor kid, you know, and I'm trying to make ends meet, and I couldn't always tithe like I wanted to. And I was scared. I'm like, God's going to get me this week. I know he is. He's going to get me. And sure enough, something happened to my car. I'm like, there it is. God got me. I didn't tithe, and he made my car fall apart. And I was under the persuasion that anything, when anything bad ever happened, it's because God was trying to get me. God was angry. God was trying to show me something. Now, it is true he disciplines those he loves, now, if you're a wayward child that's gone astray, he is going to discipline you to bring you back to the fold. That absolutely is true. 
But I, I, just for a moment, I want to talk about the storms of life and how sometimes, even though we might go through difficulties and storms, it's not because God is angry or we've done something wrong. It might be because there is a lesson to teach us in the middle of that storm that's bigger than what we have ever thought. Because here's the thing. In Matthew chapter 14, the disciples are getting in the boat. But if you read just a few verses before they get into the boat, you see that they're out there ministering. This is right after, right after the feeding of the 5,000. All right, and in that time, they only numbered the men. So really and truly, there's probably anywhere to ten to 12,000 people that the disciples were feeding on this day. And so they've been ministering to people. Man, they've been loving on people. I believe 100% they are in the perfect will of God at this moment. They're doing everything that God has asked them to do. They're, in, they're distributing, dis- distributing the miracle of Christ to other people. I believe they're in the, in the perfect will of God. But then he says in verse 22 that he constrained his disciples to get into the boat. Again, that word means forced. I start thinking about this. I'm like, why would he have to force his disciples to get into a boat? And there could be some reasons. They could have just not wanted to leave him alone. You know, Jesus wants to go alone and go pray somewhere. Maybe they didn't want to leave him behind. But, but then you see other places in Scripture where they're completely fine leaving him behind to go pray. I'm thinking, well, maybe they're just super tired and didn't feel like going to, and doing this. But yet, we see them get into the boat anyways. But we, that word constrained, force. And then I remembered, what was a large majority of their profession when Jesus called them? Fishermen. Why would he have to make a fisherman get into a boat? I started thinking about this. Why did these men were fishermen? Why did he have to force them to get into a boat? And here, and and, and this is not in the scriptures. This is my imagination. That's dangerous sometimes. But I'm just. This is what I'm thinking. I wonder if they saw the storm coming, and they're like, "Jesus, this ain't a good idea. There's a storm coming." And he says, "Get into the boat. Go to the other side." And so what do they do? They follow his command. They get into the boat. So they're in the perfect will of God. They're doing exactly what they asked him to do. And now here they are in the middle of the storm. And we cannot separate. Even though Jesus was fully man, he is also fully God. Do you think Jesus was aware there's a storm coming? Absolutely, I believe it. Jesus knew a storm was coming. This was not a surprise to him. And so I'm thinking, why would he force his disciples to go through a storm? I wonder, why does God allow me to go through storms? And I just want to calm your anxieties and fears for just a moment and just say, you know what? Sometimes God allows storms in our life, not because he's angry, but because he's trying to show us something. He's trying to teach us something. See, growing up, and you might have a little bit of a testimony like mine, I, I, had, a, I had a difficult childhood. Now, I didn't have it as bad as some, but I had, I, you know, I had my fair share of struggles. Sometimes they're all my, my own stupid fault. You know, sometimes I made dumb decisions and, and got me in the, in the dumb, hey, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, okay? And so I was that kind of person. And, and so I look back on my childhood and, and, and things, my teenage years, when I was a difficult teenager. Boy, I look back as a teenager now, I wouldn't apologize to my parents. I'm like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I was, uh, I was terrible. But that, that's the reality. In the moment, though, as, as difficult things were happening, as my life was just kind of, in time at parts just difficult in the moment i'm thinking god why are you letting this happen why is this why is this struggle happening in my life what's going on here and i remember at 17 years old this is when i moved to panama city florida i I was 17 years old and i remember being around other church kids because my dad was very faithful in bringing me to church and i remember being around other church kids and i thought man i want to have what they have and they have they say they have it all together I, I'm, I'm falling apart at the seams. At 17 years old, I'm, I'm, I'm already in things that I should not be into. 
I'm already doing things. I shouldn't. I'm thinking, I want what they have. And I remember at 17, I got in my bedroom one night, and I laid out before God. I said, God, I've tried. I've tried to get away from this stuff. I've tried to start over, and it's failed every time. I remember crying out in that moment. I said, God, the only way it's going to happen is you take it from me. I said, so God, it's yours. Just take it and even make me physically sick if you have to. That was my prayer. Make me physically sick. Now, I, I wasn't planning on going on all this, but, you know, y'all have seen me a few times already, so I'm going to give you just a little snippet of my testimony. So at 17, I, I, I ended up uh, praying that prayer. I went to school the next day. I was dating a girl, and, and uh, I, I was notorious for, for dating. I'd have a girlfriend, and then I'd have one on deck. <laughs> just in case didn't, this one didn't work out, I'd, I'd bring the other one up to deck, you know? And so I, I was dating this girl, and I got to school, and, and, uh, and she came up to me to give me a kiss, because that's what boyfriend girlfriends do. And I near about threw up all over her. She got about this close, and I just felt it come like, mm-mm. And I pushed her away, and she said, you okay? I said, yeah, I just feel a little funny. Later on, the bell rang to go to, go, go to uh, lunch. And we'd always go off campus together, because as seniors at this school, you could go off campus for lunch. And, and so she came up to me, and she went to give me a kiss again. I almost threw up on her again. And I, rem- I was reminded of what I prayed the night before. Make me sick if you have to. I'm like, Lord, you're going to make me throw up all over this girl. <laughs> and so at that moment, I said, I said, why don't you go to lunch? I'm going to stay here. And, and she says, no, something's wrong. We need to talk about this. And I said, okay, let's talk. I said, I think we need to break up. She asked me why. I, didn't go, I wasn't going to say because every time you get close, I'm going to throw up. <laughs> I figured that was probably not the best thing to say to this young girl. And so I, I told her, I said, honestly, I think some things have changed. And I, I kid you not, hand on the Bible, she turned around, grabbed a trash can, and started throwing up. I'm like, I've been wanting to do that all day long. <laughs> and so she threw up. And then after that moment, after that moment, I, I prayed. I said, God, I don't want to go chase after any other girls. I just want to wait for your timing. Well, at this time, there was a young girl in our youth group. Her name was Tracy. She'd always been there, but for some reason, she was starting to look a little extra pretty. <laughs> I started noticing her a little bit more. And uh, I would go to my dad's school. My dad was the assistant principal at a school very close to my school. He was a high school princ- principal, and I went to a high school down the road. And I would go to his school during lunchtime because he'd buy my lunch. And uh, I would sit at the faculty tabor, uh, tabor, table, and my wife, or girlfriend, or before girlfriend, uh, was sitting at the table. She was a teacher's pet. She always sat with the faculty. And she would sit at this table, and we got to talking. And one day I walked her to her math class, and I said, Tracy, um, I don't know if this would be okay, but I'd love to take you on a date one day. And she said, that's fine. You, you're just going to have to ask my dad for permission. I ain't never asked nobody's daddy for permission to date the daughter. Now, I think that's a good rule of thumb. I'm going to require it for my girl. But, but at that moment in time, that's not the way I did things. And so I'm, I had to call. He was my youth pastor. We called him Brother Steve. I called up Brother Steve. I said, Brother Steve, I want to take Tracy on a date. Is that okay? That's fine, brother. Who's chaperoning? Chaperone. <laughs> well, I ain't never chaperoned with a date before. And so we started dating. Her, her brother went on, a, on our chaperone first date. About, about a couple months into our, we hadn't kissed. We hadn't kissed yet. I'm thinking, man, this is moving pretty slow. About a month or so into our dating relationship, she told me, she says, you know, I feel convicted that I want to save my first kiss for our wedding day. Now, here's the problem. <laughs> she ain't never kissed nobody before. She didn't know how fun it was. <laughs> now, now, I did. And I felt like this was not a good bargain. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> she, and I, I almost broke up with her. Now, I'm going somewhere. You're thinking, we have gone way off track. I'm, I'm going to circle back, y'all, this whole type. 
And so uh, I, I, I prayed about it. And this is what the Lord spoke to me. He says, Andrew, every girl you've dated, you expected them to lower their standards for you. This time I'm putting a girl in your life where I'm asking you to raise your standards to her. I was like, Whew. So I came back and I said, Tracy, I prayed about it. I'll do it. I'll do it. Well, then we dated for about a year. And she tells me, you know, I feel led to be a pastor's wife. I said, we need to break up. <laughs> I, I, hand on the Bible. We had a conversation. I said, we need to break up because I'm wasting your time and you're wasting my time. and I'm not going into ministry. My granddaddy, I was talking to somebody earlier. My granddaddy was a pastor at Concord Baptist Church. He died about eight years ago. He, he's been pastoring all of my life and longer. I've seen what ministry did to him. My dad graduated from a seminary. He was in children's ministry, youth ministry. I'd, I'd seen some ugly things happen in churches. I didn't want nothing of it. I'm not going into ministry. Well, then at 17 years old, we go to a youth camp in Dothan, Alabama called World Changers. And on a Wednesday night at this camp, uh, God speaks to me. He says, Andrew, open your eyes. And I open my eyes. And I see all these teenagers raising their hands, worshiping. I'm thinking, that's cool. Right then and there, he says, you're going to go into youth ministry. Just plain as day. Well, I got so excited, I went and found my youth pastor, Brother Steve, and I went and found my dad, and I told him, I'm going into ministry, I'm going into ministry. About three years later, I enrolled into a college, and I started ministry. Now, I'm saying all this because my past, from 17 and younger, was crazy, full of regret, full of pain and, 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 and confusion, and I didn't understand it. Why is this happening What's going on? Now fast forward to now I'm, I'm in youth ministry. And guess who's having some of the similar problems I had? These teenagers. And, and, and here's what I get to say to them. These are two most powerful words you'll ever get to say to somebody. Me too. When somebody says, hey, my, my parents are really fighting, they're about to get divorced, I can say, yeah, you know what, me too. When they say, I'm having problems, man, I'm making some bad decisions, I can say, yeah, me too. Me too. Here's what I want you to understand. Sometimes God is going to allow you to go through some difficulties and storms in your life because he wants you to be able to say to somebody, me too. He wants you to have a platform. See, here's sometimes we, we, look, we get on a pity party about the things we go through and, and we don't like what's going on, but sometimes God's going to use your pain as a platform to, other, to reach other people. Listen, if you lost a loved one to cancer and you find somebody who's, who's, who's losing their loved one to cancer, you get to go beside them and hug them and say, listen, I've been there. Let me tell you how God... Help me through this time. If you're going through some financial difficulties and you encounter somebody else going through financial difficulties, you get to rally together with them and say, listen, I want to share with you my me too experience because I've been there where you are. Sometimes we go through difficulties not because God's trying to do something in us, but he's trying to use us to do something in somebody else. And so these times where we go through difficulties and pains and trials in our life, it's because he's trying to teach you something. And so I want to challenge you. Next time you encounter a conflict, a difficult time, a storm, I want you to pause and just pray simply this. God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to teach me? How are you going to use this? Simply pause. God, what are you trying to show me? Because he's talking if you'll take time to listen. So the very first thing we see is that the disciples were in the will of God. That's point number one. They were in the will of God. And then the second thing is that we see the wind of the storm, the wind of the storm. So they get out there. The Sea of Galilee is eight miles across. I've been in Israel. It is an amazing place, an amazing place. But here's the reality. That Sea of Galilee is like a bowl. 
You have all these mountains around it. And when that wind comes over those mountains and hits that water, it can create a, a, a waves like you've never seen. It can make it so choppy and so miserable. And so the Sea of Galilee is a very, very temperamental place to be. And so the disciples are rowing across, and they're trying to get there. And something's going against them. It says the wind is blowing against them. Now, I just want to pause right there. Again, the disciples were in the will of God, doing exactly what Lord Jesus has told them to do, but they got some things going against them. Now, that's, that's how it is living for Christ sometimes. God, I'm doing the best I can, but it seems like everything's against me. Ever felt like that? God, I'm really trying to make your name great, but I feel like everybody's against me. And these things are uncontrollable things, things that are out of your control, things you cannot even deal with, and yet they're coming against you. And, and, and let me give you, for instance, I remember when I told my pawpaw, does anybody in here have a pawpaw? I love my pawpaw. My pawpaw taught me how to fish, how to hit a golf ball. He took me squirrel hunting when I was a little boy. He near about blew my eardrum off. <laughs> He'd have me shake trees while he held a 410 next to my head. <laughs> True story. About near about killed me. But that's my pawpaw. I loved him to death. I remember when I told pawpaw, I said, pawpaw, I'm going to go into ministry. I'm going to go to college to study ministry. He told me, you're wasting your time. Now, I knew 100% God had called me to ministry. I knew 100% God told me to go to college. Now, I'm telling my papa, I'm going to college to go to ministry. He says, you're wasting your time. At this time, I've been dating Tracy for a few years. And he said, how are you going to support a family on a ministry pay? Why don't you go get a, a degree in something else and do ministry on the side? Treating it like a hobby almost. And can I tell you for a moment, I contemplated it. Maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe I should do something like that. As I've always wanted to do electrical work. I've, I was very good at it. I, I, it's something I did on the side all the time. And so I'm thinking, maybe I just focus on doing being an electrician or something like that and then do ministry on the side. And, and one person's voice almost derailed the entire plan of God because I valued this person's voice. This, this, this person's voice had weight to it. It was my papa, and I loved him. And everything he said was Right? And so I was in conflict. God, I know you've called me to ministry. I know you've called me to college, but Papa says I'm wasting my time. What do I do? See, here's the thing. When you're trying to live for God, sometimes you're going to have people talking, trying to talk you out of it. Sometimes you're going to be trying to live for God in your workplace, and you're going to have people that's not living the same way you are, and you're going to have a difficulty holding on to your testimony. Here's the thing. Sometimes you're going to be around people who don't have the same goals as you, so you're going different directions. And, and the reality is sometimes that's difficult. And so the disciples are now in the middle of the sea. Everything's against them. They're not making any progress. Matter of fact, again, let's do some calculations. It says they were, it was evening time when they got to the boat. So it could be about 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock in the evening. They get into the boat. When Jesus comes walking on the water to them, it says it's in the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They've been rowing from 7 o'clock to now approximately 3 o'clock in the morning. And they're only halfway across. <laughs> it should have took them no more than four hours to cross the whole lake, the whole sea. Now they're in the middle of the sea. I guarantee you, physically, they were exhausted. Spiritually, they were exhausted. They've been ministering all day long. I wonder if their faith was a little exhausted. Surely if Jesus was going to come help, he would have been here by now. And, and, and so here they are in the middle of the sea, not making any progress. And they come in the fourth watch of the night, they look out on the water, and here comes Jesus. And they think it's a hallucination. They think something's wrong. They think it's a spirit. Who is this coming? And can I tell you just for a second, um, <laughs> in the middle of a storm in the boat, I'd rather be in the boat than in the water. 
I don't know about you, but I, I feel a little bit more safer in the boat than I would in the water. Uh, and, and matter of fact, I've been there in a moment. I, I, I was telling somebody earlier, I, I grew up with a friend of mine. We went to college together. His name was Dave, Dave Daly. He was about 6'3 and 350 pounds. He was a large man. I love Dave. He was from, from, where is he from? Philadelphia. He was from Philly. He had an accent. And I love Dave. Matter of fact, I called him Danger Dave because every time we went fishing together, something crazy would happen. We went fishing one time at the jetties at San Andreas State Park, and we'd wade fish. We'd go about belly button deep. And anytime we caught a fish, we'd, we'd tie it onto our little lanyard there next to our, our, our hip. Well, Dave was the one keeping all the fish on him. A swarm of sharks came in around us, bull sharks. He turns around. I'm already on the, on the bank. <laughs> I'm just waving at him. Dave, <laughs> this man stays fishing holding a fishing pole with one hand, punching sharks with the other. I, hand on the Bible. I, this man was a manly man, I, or stupid, I don't know. What other, but he's out there just punching sharks in the nose as they get close. I'm scared to death. So me and, and Dave decided we was going to enter into a fishing tournament. It's a church fishing tournament. He says, hey, I got us a boat to fish in. Now we've always wade fished, and so now we have a, we upgraded. We have a boat now. He says, meet me on Beach Drive at such and such time in the morning, and we'll go. Well, here's the thing. After I hung up the phone, I realized this place, Beach Drive, that we always fished from, didn't have a boat launch. So I'm trying to think, how are we going to launch this boat? Well, here comes Dave, 5 o'clock in the morning, and he's got this minivan. Looks like a stranger danger van. <laughs> this thing is all beat up, and it's crazy looking. And hanging out, he's got, his, he's got his lift gate open, and hanging out the back end is a John boat. And I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at me. I said, there ain't no way. <laughs> there ain't no way we're going to fit. Matter of fact, I got a picture. I asked him one time to send me this picture. It's blurry, but maybe you get a little bit of an idea of what this John boat looked like. This man brought this for us to fish in. And it's hanging out the back end of his, his minivan. And so we pick it up, and we carry it to the water and drop it in. And then he pulls out the world's oldest trolling motor. I've never, it's like the prototype to a trolling motor. This thing was so old, he pulls it out, he hooks it up, and we go to fishing. <laughs> Let me tell you, when we get both of us in this vessel, I can reach my hand over the side of it and play in the water like this. <laughs> I mean, we're near about submarine, okay? I'm just, I think, this isn't good. And we start fishing. And all of a sudden, it starts getting a little choppy. Now, to a normal boat, this probably wouldn't be choppy, but we're already almost underwater, and so it's choppy. And I hear a noise behind me. I turn around. Dave had cut a two-liter bottle in half, and he's scooping water out the back of the boat. I'm thinking, oh, no. Oh, no. And I said, Dave, do I need a help? He's like, no, keep on fishing. And so he's scooping out the water. And by that time, a wave comes over the front of the boat, and we sink. I mean, just like a rock. No, no, like sudden. It wasn't like Titanic in the back end. No, it was just bloop. <laughs> like, we're done. Now, the beautiful thing is we're about five foot of water, so we just, like, stand up. <laughs> Dave's electrocuting himself trying to get this trolling motor unhooked, and he gets it unhooked, and we haul this thing underneath the water all the way back to shore, and we tump it over and get all the water out, and there's a bunch of rednecks on the shore, and they've been gathered together watching us fish and said, we're wondering how long it's going to take for you to sink that thing. And so I'm going to tell you, 
I'm going to tell you, I've been there when I was in the boat, and I've been there when I was in the water. I prefer being in the boat rather than being in the water. Now, can I get a witness? Now, here's what I want to say. At this moment in time, the fourth watch of the morning, it is 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. Jesus comes walking. They're freaking out. Who is this person? And Jesus speaks out to them, and, and Peter says, if it's you, then tell me to come on the water too. He says, come. Peter is leaving the comfort of his boat to get out into the water. That's a scary situation. And he starts walking on the water towards Jesus. Now, I always believed that when Peter began to sink, it was because, because he doubted Jesus. Because he says, oh, thou little faith. Wherefore didn't thou doubt? Why, why did you doubt? And Because remember, the wind became boisterous, and he, he takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he begins to sink. And I'm thinking, well, if I'm walking on the water towards Jesus, and Jesus is in front of me, and he's not sinking, why would I doubt him? If Jesus is having trouble walking on the water, I might be a little, what's he doing? <laughs> why is he going under? If, I, if I'm watching Jesus sink, I'm probably going to sink because I lose faith in him. But he's not sinking, he's fine. It says, and I've heard people say it's because he focused on the, form, uh, on the storm, but here's the reality. The storm was already happening before he ever got out of the boat. The storm wasn't a, a new entry into the equation. He knew the storm was happening. He stepped onto the water while it was storming. Here's what I believe. I believe what happened in that moment is Peter didn't doubt Jesus. Peter doubted himself. How can I be doing this? The storm served as a distraction, but I believe what happened is Peter's like, how in the world? I can't be doing this. This is, this is impossible. Here's what I think a storm will do in your life. Here's, here's two things. Number one, storm will expose your weakness. God will use a storm to expose your weakness. And so in Peter's life, what it exposed in his life was he doubted his ability to do what God told him to do. God called him to something that was never done before. He had never walked on water. He had never seen it done before. But now here he is stepping out of the boat. And I believe this was the moment where God was using this to explain to Peter, Peter, if you're going to follow me and do things that I ask you to do, you're going to have to believe in yourself that I have called you to do it because I see something in you you do not see. And so, Peter, I have confidence in your ability. Step out of the boat. And I'm wondering how many of us can use a storm in our life to expose some of our weaknesses. Again, this is a perfect time. When you go through a difficulty, you can pause and reflect and ask God, God, please show me, what's my weakness here? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me in this moment, God? Then the second thing I believe what happens, I love this part. We're getting towards the end, and it's getting good. Hold on a second, okay? The second thing I see is happening with a storm. A storm will not only expose your weakness, but a, a storm will also encourage your worship. It will encourage your worship because look what happens in verse 33. It says, they came to rescue, got Peter back in the boat. And then it says, then they that were in the ship came and gathered around Peter, brought him some hot chocolate and a blanket, comforted him, and eased his ego a little bit by telling him, you're a good disciple no matter how bad you failed. No, that's not what it says at all, is it? No, it says this. It says, then they were in the ship, came, and what? Worshipped him. You know who else is in the ship at this point? Who else is in the ship right now? He just sank like a rock. Peter's in the ship. Peter is at the feet of Jesus, soaking wet, worshipping him. <laughs> he is dripping wet from his failure, and he's worshipping Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that. How good and comforting it is that when you're in the middle of the storm and then the one who can calm the storm steps into your ship, man, how kind of, what kind of worship happens then? 
Man, how, how much do you worship God when the one who can say, peace be still, and makes it all go away? Man, because that's, that's, that's why you see people worship differently. That's the reason why you see people, because people think, God, I remember the storms I've been in. I remember the situations I've been put through. And God, you delivered me. God, you rescued me. God, you stepped into my boat. And all of a sudden, you worship a little differently than other people because you know what you've been through. I'm going to tell you, a storm will encourage your worship. (laughs) But here's my last point. This is my favorite one. So we see the will of God, the wind of the storm. Now we see the wetness of the disciple. We see the wet disciple. So immediately after this crazy moment, Peter sinks like a rock. He gets back in the boat. Verse 34, and they were gone over. They came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all the country round about and brought him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as, is, as many as were touched were made perfectly whole. Now, (laughs) they haven't slept, they haven't relaxed, Peter is still wet, (laughs) and they get to the other side, and they start worshiping and ministering with people. Now, this is what I want you to understand. There's going to be times in our life where there's difficulties, there's struggles, there's unforeseen circumstances, and you might mess up, and you might fail, and you might get a little wet, but can I tell you? The Lord Jesus doesn't want you to sit and sulk and sour about that. He says, it's time to get up and start working. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Peter probably wasn't even dry yet. He's out there ministering to people and, and, and working with people. I want you to understand, I've been told my whole life, and I think I believed it my whole life, that, that some reason we have to dry off before we come to church. You can't come to church wet. You can't come to church dripping. You've got to get yourself cleaned up. Get dried off. All right, we can't see you like that. Because we don't do wet people at church, and we don't do damp people at church, and we don't mess with dripping people at a church. We only do dry people, people who's got it together. Can I tell you, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, while you're still wet, I want you to worship, and while you're still wet, I want you to go serve, and while you're still wet, I got a plan for you, I haven't abandoned you, I haven't given up on you. Yeah, you might have messed up a little. <laughs> yeah, you might have failed a little, but I still got a plan for you. And so get up, we got something to do, we got some work to do, and I wonder how many of us are going to sit around and sulk and sour until we dry off. Are we ready to get up and start working, even if we're wet a little bit? Proverbs 24, 16 says, For a just man falleth seven times and riseth up again. Too many times we see people just sit and sour because of their mistakes and because of their regrets, but here's Jesus calling, saying, I got work for you to do. Young man, young woman, older gentleman, senior, middle-aged man, middle-aged woman, I got work for you to do. It's time to get up. Quit sitting around. You're a little wet, that's fine, let's get to work. And too many times I see my brothers and sisters stumble in their walk and then that stumbling in their walk will end up derailing their faith and their work for the Lord for years and then they wallow in self-pity and regret and shame and they just sit at the bottom of the boat just soaking wet thinking I can't believe that happened. Can I tell you how many times the enemy tries to attack my mind reminding me of my past, reminding me why I should be disqualified from ministry, reminding me of why I shouldn't be in the pulpit, reminding me of my mistakes and the things I've done and the things I've said. Listen, here's what the enemy does. The enemy cannot destroy you. If you are a child of God, you are firmly in the hand of God. He can't destroy you but by God he will distract you and he will bring things up and he'll make you think you're the worst person in the world distracting you from what God has called you to do and here's what I want to challenge you to do just push out the enemy's voice get up and start working 
get up and start worshiping. You can lead your family wet. You can be at your job wet. You can come to church wet. You can sing wet. You can lead wet. You can serve wet. It don't matter. It don't matter. Jesus has a plan for you. Now, now here's, here's my challenge as I wrap it up. I wonder... I wonder if some of you in this room might be thinking, Brother Andrew, I've had a pretty good life. I haven't had a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of suffering. I can't really, I can't really relate to a whole lot of things you said. You might be in the same camp of my wife. My wife and I would talk sometimes, and she would tell me, Andrew, I just don't have a testimony like your testimony. You've got a cool story. I don't have a cool story. Her story was she got saved at four years old. Her daddy was a pastor and a preacher. They did Bible studies every night. She loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. They loved Jesus together. They, 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 man, they walked the walk. The first boy she ever kissed was the boy she married. Our wedding day was our first kiss. I was the only boy she ever dated. It's kind of good for me. I'm the best kiss she's ever had. But that's her testimony. That's her t- I was saved at four. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in church. I served in church. I married the first boy I ever dated. We kissed on our wedding day. That's my testimony. I'm like, that's an amazing testimony. That's such a good testimony. That's a testimony I wish I had. I really do. Because my testimony is, let me tell you about what God saved me from. Her testimony is, let me tell you about what God kept me from. So wherever you are in this room right now, in your walk, in your story, you still have a platform to reach somebody that you can come alongside of and say, me too, me too. You can still come alongside of them and be a, be a help to them. God will use your pain as a platform, but he'll also use wherever you are as a platform because there's somebody, some, you, you in this room are going to be able to reach people I will never be able to reach because of your story, because of what God has done in your life. God wants to use you. Listen, Fairview, He loves this church. He loves you. He loves the people you're around every day. And guess what? You get to be a part of that amazing plan to reach those people you're around all day long, every day. And you get to fill up this building. That's cool. That is cool. So church, what is God trying to teach you? What is God trying to show you? What weakness is he exposing? Maybe he's trying to encourage your worship. Maybe he's building you up and saying, hey, listen, you've been sitting around wet a little too long. It's time to get to work. Church, We've got a job to do. We've got a job to do.